Welcome everyone, this is Carlos from SeedCamp. I'm here in Dublin for Web Summit and I had the privilege of speaking with one of the founders of one of the company's uh, products that I love to use the most in my day-to-day -day work, Evernote. So I'm definitely going to be plugging Evernote quite a bit as part of this podcast and for those of you who haven't tried it, definitely worth trying it, paying for the premium. It's a lifesaver for scanning cards as you will find out when you go to events. Also, I want to apologize if you hear background music that is classical music, uh, courtesy of the hotel we're staying at, and hopefully won't be too distracting. But with that, thanks for joining us, Phil. It's great to hear uh, the panel that you were just on talking about uh, some of the transitions and, and sort of the current state of the market, but we won't really focus on that just yet. We're going to move back in time to the moment when you were in BU and what you want to do after and considering the transition you made there. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about kind of those early years in Phil's life, about what you did, why you did it, and, and what led to eventually Evernote's story. Neat. Well, it's great to see you, Carlos. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me here in this strange hotel room with, with classical music background noise. Uh, I feel like we should be speaking like in a more, more sonorous tone of voice to, to take advantage of this. Victorian. Victorian, Victorian style. Yeah. yeah. We'll try. Well, so yeah, I went to BU. It was a long time ago, and I studied... Um, studied computer science. Uh, I was a, a, a programmer, kind of a nerd growing up. Uh, always knew I wanted to do something with computers, but uh, didn't really know what. But I always assumed I would just get a, you know, get a job. And I started working uh, really early. I, I was working more or less full-time in high school as a, as a programmer. Um, started a small company in high school. Worked as a, as a consultant, as a freelance programmer, kind of all throughout. And I wound up actually dropping out of BU with one class left. I had literally four credits left. And I uh, got into some fight with the administration over billing or something. I don't even remember. And uh, I think I was just being an idiot. So I think I just remember storming out of the office and, uh, and never coming back. It was uh, kind of a dumb thing to do. I should have just finished my four credits and graduated. But I, at that point in my life, was not thinking about what I would want to do next. I was just doing stuff. And things started happening. So things just started happening. And that first happening was... Well, I was working, I had a job at a Boston company called ATG, our technology mm -hmm. group, with uh, some friends of mine from college, uh, Geech and Brandon, and that was a great job. That was the first job I've ever had where I felt like I was definitely like below average compared to the other engineers. Mm -hmm. I, I sort of got used to uh, feeling you know, pretty smart, mm -hmm. and, but this was such a brilliant team that as soon as I got there, uh, I just felt like, wow, I am barely adequate to be working here. And it was a really amazing feeling. It kind of made me realize that the, the secret to happiness is to maximize the amount of time that you spend being the least interesting person in the room. Yeah. It was a, a great place. I learned a tremendous amount. And after a couple of years there, Geech Brand and I thought, hey, well, what would it be like to start our own company? Yeah. Uh, we just wanted to see whether we could do it. And uh, so we did. We started a company called Engine 5. There's originally going to be five of us, then two chicken dows. So there's only three, but we already had the domain name. So we started Engine 5, and we literally didn't know that there was such a thing as investors. Yeah. We were just three programmers. We didn't know that there were other people who would give you money. So we just showed up for work with our computers and started programming, and were profitable from day one. Uh, never took any investor money, and started building some of the first-generation e-commerce yeah. software. Mm. I think there was other you know, companies in the original dot-com you know, era that, mm. that had plenty of investment, but we were just profitable because we didn't know any better. And uh, it worked out fine. Um, you know, it's, it's hard work being profitable. Mm. It's not necessarily better than living off of investment. They both have advantages and disadvantages. Uh, in my, my second company and my third company at Evernote, we certainly took investment mm. money and delayed revenue, which I think was the right thing to do. But the first time around, yeah, we had to, you know, every single payroll, starting with the first one, we had to make based on the revenues that we had. 
And that definitely took a certain discipline and an appreciation of money, of capital. Like, you, mm -hmm. we, we spent very, very little because we knew where every dollar, we had to earn every dollar that we spent. And uh, I, I think that that experience was very worthwhile. It isn't necessarily how I would recommend building a company now, though. Right now, Evernote's, you're an exec chairman there, and, and obviously you work with many other startups in the, in the context of your, your VC hat on. Mm -hmm. But you had to learn a lot of those managerial skills presumably during those early years, that would then later um, help you as the company scaled, Evernote scaled. What are the key lessons that you learned during that first sort of three guys, <laughs> hacker, what were the two or three like anecdotes that you think uh, were the valuable ones that you're like, you know, this really helped me not screw up my next company? All three of us were programmers, uh, but I was, uh, I think I was the weakest programmer. I'm, 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 like, I'm a pretty good programmer, but uh, Geisha and Brandon were, you know, sort of superhuman programmers. Mm -hmm. These guys that are just amazingly productive. You know, you, you see, you'll see programmers in some companies that are like literally as productive as like 20, you know, other employees. They were like that. So I was the least useful person, which is how I sort of became management because um, they had to do real work. And so I wound up dealing with uh, what seemed like the lesser important things of dealing with contracts and, you know, meeting with customers and that kind of stuff. And so I kind of became CEO by default. Mm. Um, we only barely talked about it. I think like I owned a sports jacket and, and that kind of stuff. And over time, as we grew to be a little bit bigger, I wound up doing less and less programming and, and uh, you know, more and more CEOing. But I never went through any phase where I was a manager. Like, I went from being an engineer to being the CEO just by declaring that I'm the CEO. And then no one ever, like, no one ever came and told me that I couldn't do it. And I was CEO for 19 years or something between mm -hmm. uh, uh, Engine 5 and Core Street. And I never know what I was CEO for 19 years. And pretty much every day I expected... So someone would be like, hey, wait a minute, like, you don't get to be the CEO, like, you, don't, you can't just declare yourself that. And it never happened. So I guess at some point, I started being able to get away with it. Mm. And the, the biggest inflection point in your, in your, before Evernote, what was the biggest inflection point uh, staff-wise that you felt like the, the role of a CEO was now a, a very specific thing that was no longer allowing you to do anything having to do with product the way that you might have been involved with before? Well, that actually came very late. Like, that only came... A couple of years ago at Evernote. So for the first 15, 16, 17 years of being a CEO at various companies, it was I it was just something I did. And it wasn't until very recently, until Evernote got north of maybe two hundred people, maybe two hundred and fifty people, mm -hmm. where it really felt like that job changed in a way that it really like the company deserved someone who was going to be a great CEO at scale. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I felt that I I, I wasn't gonna be. Mm -hmm. um, I just wasn't particularly good at dealing with the kinds of puzzles that a, a company of a few hundred people mm. on its way to being a few thousand people deals with. I was much better at the earlier stage stuff. I enjoyed it a lot better. And by then, you know, Evernote was well enough known where I got to socialize with lots of other founders and CEOs and entrepreneurs, and I could kind of see what greatness looked like. And, yeah. and I realized that, well, I was, you know, I was as good as some of these people at, at, at some things, but as a manager, as a, as a CEO, as a leader at scale, I just I wasn't as good as a lot of other people. Mm -hmm. I wasn't as good as, you know, Jeff Wheeler at LinkedIn, for example. Yeah. And I thought, okay, Evernote really deserves someone who is going to be great at that. So that's mm -hmm. why I started looking for a CEO and sort of started making the transition to step down from day-to-day -day responsibility and become the, the executive chairman and then eventually go and join uh, General Catalyst as a, as a VC. Hmm. Maybe a little bit out of scope for the, the audience of the podcast, but just out of curiosity, there must be some way that somebody who is uh, an early stage founder becoming CEO and then going into a growth stage company can learn the skills that some of these guys that you admire mm -hmm. as later stage CEOs uh, have. Well, the couple of things that have been most important to me 
that kind of got me through early and sort of middle stages. Um, probably the most important one is this. Um, I realized that I would often conflate difficult decisions with unpleasant decisions. Mm. So I would often uh, think about a decision that was emotionally unpleasant to make, and because it was emotionally unpleasant to make, I would pretend that it was difficult to know what the right answer was. And I think a lot of people do this. I think mm. this is a fundamental thing. And I forced myself to, to not think like that. I forced myself to separate out, do I know what the right answer is? Is, this, is it intellectually difficult or easy to decide what the right answer is? Totally separate from, is this emotionally hard? Or is, is this emotionally unpleasant or difficult? Mm. And once I started thinking about it that way, and forced myself to start making decisions based on how correct they were, not based on how pleasant they were, mm. I think a lot of things started going better. Mm. Uh, not necessarily happier, because I wound up making unpleasant decisions, but, but better. Mm. And that, that's probably a core skill that took me a few years to really grok. Mm. And now that I'm observing other founders and managers and CEOs, not just CEOs, I mean, everyone has to do this, I think, in life. Mm. Now that I've been aware of that problem in myself, I observe it everywhere, in almost everyone. And in the really great CEOs that I see, I think they've sort of mastered that intuitively. That's a good point. So if we go back now to the origins of Evernote, which I think are, are well, if you look at the company where it is today and the massive impact that it's had for a lot of people in their lives, and you hear all these stories about people using it for scrapbooking, I use it for a lot of our organizations, uh, data sharing, and you look at that and, and we backtrack to the origins of it, and maybe the first time you actually pitched it uh, to somebody external, what was that like? What was the origin of the idea? What was the original pitch? And maybe that people haven't heard, if you remember it, just to, to sort of provide some, some, some context of how it started. Well, I think the idea behind Evernote is like the least original idea in technology. It was, you know, we're going to use computers and other devices to write things down and remember things. It's like what people have been doing forever. And we, so we never really considered this to be a big idea with, uh, in that sense of the word. We thought we wanted to do something that was fundamental, that everyone was already doing, remembering things, writing things down, and trying to be productive, but that, that people are having a bad experience with. And we just thought, we can do it better. We could just have something that's a significantly better experience of a very common need and a very common task, and that that's, that's what we were going to do. Just so that everybody knows the context, what were people using at that time as a replacement or as a substitute for what you eventually Evernote solved? Well, in technology, it was, it was you know, mostly either emailing uh, emails to yourself or using Microsoft Word and just keeping things in random files. And then, but then you had to like, worry about where files are and transferring them from computer to computer. And there was all sorts of you know, notes products, sticky pads, but they all just kind of sucked. And when we sat around thinking about what Evernote was going to be, mm. we actually went through a very specific exercise. Because this is a third company right now, same, same team on my side. Our first company, Engine 5, we basically did consulting. And we said we were doing custom development and consulting for e-commerce companies. Yeah. We worked super hard, you know, worked 16 hours a day, and sold that company eventually. But it was exhausting. And what we learned from that is that being a consultant sucks. It's a terrible mm. way to make a living because uh, you get paid well, but you're not building anything of value. Like mm. When you're not billing, you're not making money. There's no, yeah. there's no product. And so we said... Okay, the next time we make a company, we have to make a product. We can't just do consulting. And so their second company was called Core Street, which was an MIT spinoff. A co-founder was a, is a famous uh, MIT professor, Sylvia McCauley. And uh, he had this amazing math around um, doing uh, uh, crypto uh, validation. So we did a, basically security and crypto systems for U.S. government, for banks, for other governments. Mm. And we built it as a product. And um, the lesson we learned from there is like, well, yeah, we built a product, so that's nice. 
but it wasn't a product for us. Like it was a product for banks and governments. And so we weren't a bank or government. So we constantly had to ask ourselves, you know, what does the customer want? What does the customer want? What does the customer want? And we got kind of tired of that. And so when we were we sold that company as well, and we sat around more or less the same team of people and thought, well, what should we do next? We said, well, let's make a product. Let's learn the lessons from the previous two companies. Let's make a product, but let's make it for us. And let's only make it for us. Like, let's see what happens if we make something that we are the target customer. And we never ask, what does the customer want? Because we're the customer and we just want to build something that's beautiful for us. And uh, that was the decision. That's how we did it. We sat around thinking, well, okay, what do we like? I remember this discussion. Uh, I'm a big video game player. I play tons of games. Most of us were. And we thought, well, maybe we should make some video games. And I thought, well... Which games are you... Just complete non-sequitur, but what games are your favorite ones? Uh, currently, I am obsessed, although I think I'm getting over my obsession on the iPhone with a stupid game called Soda Dungeon. But it's <laughs> so much fun. And uh, on, the, on the PC, I'm playing Elite Dangerous, which is much more of a series. So. But I go through games pretty quickly. So we wanted to make a game, but then I thought, well, look, I already have this giant stack of games on my desk that I don't really have time to play. The world already has lots of great games, so like, let's not make a game because we don't really need more yeah. games. So we thought, well, you know, we also really like this new social media stuff. And it's actually coming along really well. This is 2007. Mm. Maybe we should make a, um, a social media platform. And then we thought, well, but Facebook already owns the market. Actually, it was before Facebook. It was MySpace. We kind of thought, well, MySpace already owns everything. You can't possibly beat MySpace. Why, why even try? Yeah. Facebook wasn't even launched then. It was just barely getting launched. So we decided not to do that. And then we went, got to productivity. And we said, well, we really like... We want to feel smart. We want to feel productive. And we hate the current productivity tools. They all feel so old and they haven't changed in 20 years. Yeah. And let's do that. And that, that idea really stuck. So we decided to make Evernote. You know, we, we thought of it as a cognitive prosthesis, as yeah. an external brain. And we started working on that. And then we met a team out in California that had a very similar vision, was working on the same stuff, had really cool technology. And we actually moved from uh, Boston to California, merged with, a, with that team and reformed the company, and that was the, the modern Evernote, which was 2007. Excellent. I, I didn't know that bit of it, but um, I think you bring up a very good point, which perhaps we're in the middle of going through right now as well, which is the nature of working tools. And you see the success Slack has had mm -hmm. recently in terms of displacing other work tools. Do you find that we're in a, in a situation right now where this new engagement method of sort of messaging and maybe rich messaging with API integration is the way forward, and is that how does that affect kind of the vision for for a, a company like Evernote or, or other companies who might find themselves in that in in that divide between the two? Yeah, I really think I mean this is more relevant to uh, my job as a general catalyst as an investor, and more relevant to the next few things that I'm looking to start or, or be a part of at an early stage. I really think that conversational UXs are are the next apps. I think I think bots are the next apps. Basically, I think everything in the world is going to get rewritten to have a conversational user experience, by which, which I mean uh, potentially typing into something like Slack or WeChat or, or, or iMessage or whatever, but potentially also just speaking, like to you know, Amazon Echo or Siri. A conversational interactions are, have become really interesting and really powerful. They're kind of retro. Like we've had, we've had you know, IRC bots forever back when I was in college, but they're becoming really powerful and interacting with a computer conversationally is a very, very different uh, feeling. Mm. Uh, so I, I've become really fascinated by this in the next few months, next, in the past few months, and uh, looking to actually make significant investments and, and, and really play around with this area. So I, it's one of the things, conversational UXs is one of my main uh, areas of focus right now.
So that's from an investment point of view and from a thesis point of view. Now, we're, we're obviously seeing a huge transformation in, in Europe from the point of view of foreign capital coming in. Mm -hmm. uh, Portugal is now the new Web Summit, as was announced this year. And we're seeing uh, uh, more and more US VCs coming and becoming active mm -hmm. in, in, in Europe. What is it, what is it in, your, in your eyes, what are the companies do you see that in Europe that can scale to be huge? What are the, the business ideas that can be born in, in Europe that you might have a thesis on that could be huge, even though the, the, the nature of the market is perhaps more fragmented at the, at the point of origin? Well, I don't think there's anything particularly magical about uh, any geography. Mm. So I'm not sure that there are particular things that are better suited for Europe than, than mm. for the U.S. Or, or anything else. I think in general, for most things, borders are less important. Borders of all kinds are less important. I think this is actually one of the other major trends that's going to happen is the reduction in importance of all different types of lines of demarcation. For example, I think your company's LDAP directory, like your company's employee directory, mm -hmm. is becoming almost irrelevant uh, for, for everything. Like, it is no longer the dividing line between anything. It's not really relevant for security anymore. It's not really relevant for you know, privileged communication. It's not really relevant for collaboration. I think like more and more security threats will come equally from inside and outside, but also collaboration will come from inside and outside. So the, the, your LDAP directory, for lack of a better word, is becoming largely relevant. And companies that are making products that are still very centered around like the employee base in a company are on the wrong side of history. And I think that model probably extends to geographic boundaries, to, to physical borders, to country borders. Obviously, some things will make more sense in Europe than elsewhere. But for the most part, I think this is overstressed. And I definitely look for things as an investor and as an entrepreneur. I look for things that are inherently universal, inherently global. And I'm a little bit turned off by things that have uh, very specifically local, local components. Mm. Yeah, you made some really interesting points there about kind of building a company where some of the traditional means by um, that, that they would approach employees or the way that they'd be ring-fenced have changed. But if we look back at the time when Evernote was launched, one of the things that was really tricky and is tricky today is rising above the noise of all these companies that are you know, increasingly global in nature, mm -hmm. increasingly relying on one or two or three distribution points, which they all share in common, App Store, mm -hmm. Google Play, yep. and... What, what tips or what, what things did, did you guys do to rise above that considering how many competitors you have? That's a really good question because um, I don't agree with this metaphor at all, rising above the noise. I don't, think it's, I don't think there's noise. I don't think it's gotten harder. I think it's the wrong focus. It doesn't matter how many apps there are in the App Store. If your app is great, it will stand out. And it is no harder for a great app to stand out today, probably easier than it was um, five years ago or seven years ago. And if you think of your competition as the giant you know, mass of mediocre apps, mm -hmm. then sure. Like, it's harder to find a random mediocre thing, but a random mediocre thing doesn't deserve to succeed. If anything, I think the world has become much more of a meritocracy. And if you make something great, you will get noticed and stand out. And we can talk about the specific the specific avenues for that, I think, are actually getting more mature and actually getting more efficient. I think the world is more efficient at highlighting great things than it was five years ago. So I don't worry at all about noise. In fact, I think that metaphor leads people down the wrong level, the wrong way of thinking. One of the interesting interviews that I heard maybe about a year ago when you were, you were making a statement about focus and mm -hmm. focusing the Evernote product, was back when you were, were in Evernote full-time. Maybe can you walk us through 
how if you're a founder and your company's growing and you're looking at different ways of monetizing and you're looking at all these different channels and you know you have to experiment mm -hmm. and how do you balance knowing that in the future that could come back to haunt you as lack of focus or maybe you're losing your core user base how, how do you balance that between diversified attempts at building product revenue streams additional ones versus just becoming too stretched well, you know, you, you should never try to, you shouldn't, you shouldn't try to make decisions, especially at a startup, based on uh, what can go wrong, mm -hmm. you know, based on trying to avoid, you know, future pitfalls. Yeah. Uh, that's going to lead to conservative decisions. So you should just accept that you're going to make mistakes, that people are going to hate you, at least some of the time, some of the people, you're going to have to, you know, for every, for every uh, few steps forward that you make, there's going to be a step or two back. Otherwise, you're just not, you're not trying hard enough. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's an emotionally difficult thing to, 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 to do, but it's intellectually easy. It's obvious that this is the right approach, even if it's unpleasant to do it. I'd say one thing that I learned for myself pretty quickly is the difference between experimenting and playing around. You're not experimenting unless you're actually figured out ahead of time what the experimental protocol is. Mm. What data are you going to get? How are you going to look at them? What does success look like? What does failure look like? What kind of decisions are you going to make? If you haven't written this down ahead of time, it's not an experiment. The vast majority of time when companies say that they're experimenting or something, no, they're not. Where, where's the experiment? Where's the control? Where's the, like, where's the plan ahead of time? Just because you're doing something doesn't mean you're experimenting. That just means that you're just, you know, you're just goofing off. Yeah. So part of focus is, yeah, you can do 20 different things. You can have 20 different experiments if they're actually experiments. And they mm -hmm. run for a certain amount of time and you know what, they, what you're going to do with them afterwards. Mm -hmm. Certainly, even in our case, at least early on, until, until I really understood this, most of the time when we said we were experimenting, we really weren't. We were just you know, randomly doing something. But since you already have that lesson learned, can I assume that, therefore, the reason why you weren't doing it was not because you were cognizant, is because you had maybe too large an organization, or was it because product managers weren't aligned in, around one core set of theses that you were testing? Or how, what caused that internally, to, to that fracturing of the difference between a proper experiment and versus just, just throwing stuff at the wall? I think, you know, I think all of this takes a real level of discipline and uh, maintaining a level of discipline that feels good as a company gets to hundreds of thousands of people is a really a test of leadership and management that requires people who are excellent leaders and managers. It isn't something that, that, that I'm inherently good at, but there are people who are. There are people who are generally great at getting a few thousand people to be disciplined and to go about things correctly and to feel good about it. You know, it's easier to have discipline if you can enforce it as a dictator, but that method doesn't work in companies because everyone just leaves. Mm. It's much harder to have discipline and have people be happy while they're disciplined. Mm. But just because it's hard doesn't mean you shouldn't have to do it. It means mm. you should have people that are actually good at that. You know, mm. If I try to you know, put modesty aside, like there are things that I think that I'm actually really good at. And there are other people who are as good as I am, if not better, in any given thing. And so... Once a company has a certain amount of traction and can afford and can actually has the luxury of being able to get the very best people in for each particular thing, that's what they should do. Mm. Like that's what we did at Evernote. Mm. Uh, when you're still when you're still struggling to get noticed, as we were for for years, then of course you have to make do with with what you have. So like you know, I was not a fantastic CEO at any point in the company, but you know, until we could actually afford to hire a fantastic CEO, well, we you know, I make do with with me. Yeah, I mean, you bring up a very good point about not being a good CEO and being aware of it. And it's very scary for most founders when the things start getting complicated in, in the company, whether you're firing somebody or you're, there's a difficult shareholder situation. And they're probably thinking the same thing that you're saying. Now you're, you're sitting obviously in a very different situation right now where you do have a product out there that's loved by many and, and they're paying users and you're also now with a hat as an investor. But one of the things that 
maybe you could share is how do you keep a straight face? How do you manage an employee base? How do you set visions and goals when deep down inside you're asking yourself that question? Am I the right CEO? Do I know what to do? I actually, I'm just making this up as I go along. What, yeah. what was the thing that drove you through that process as the only guy who could do that at the time? Yeah. Well, I think at no point did I feel that I wasn't a good CEO. I maybe felt like I wasn't, I wasn't good enough for what we could get. Mm. That there were people who were better, and that finally we can get those people. I mean, I always knew there were people who could better. It's just a question of, you know, can you realistically attract them? Yeah. Usually you can't, but at some point you can. So it's not like I had, you know, a lot of self-doubt about, you know, am I doing an okay job? Like, I, I always thought that I was, you know, I was serviceable. I was sort of good to very good. But once we could afford to get world-class, we ought to shoot for world-class. Mm. But in terms of the, the you know, the self-doubt, the, the questions, uh, how do you motivate a team? I think there's different approaches to it. I'm not an expert at this. I tried to do it with as much just honesty as, as, as I could. Mm. I would tell people when I wasn't sure about something. And that, that worked really well. It worked really well, you know, up to a certain size. You know, I think it works great when you're, when you're five people, 10 people, 50 people, 100 people. You know, it starts, like, it starts creaking at some point just because information becomes less perfect. And mm. when people, when not everyone at the company is directly hearing things from you, but they're hearing things through some kind of broken telephone, then, you know, you start having to have different types of, of, of ways to communicate the direction of leadership. Yeah. And I thought I was actually, and still am, very good at, motivating people that I'm talking to directly, mm. especially people who are intrinsically motivated. Like if you give me a small team of hyper-competent nerds, mm. like I can walk through walls with them, but getting a few hundred people that you can't really talk to all the time by yourself uh, on the same page, that, that takes a different kind of skill. And there are definitely people who are great at that. And that's not a bad thing. That's, that's a good thing. But there are mm. people who are great at that and that you can get those people. Mm. Okay, well, to, to conclude, maybe the last question is, is one maybe slightly on the same note, but motivational for those that are listening, uh, early stage founders, CEOs. What tools, maybe books, or maybe resources, or training courses, or, or even mentorship, do you recommend for that, that process? Because in many cases, it's a lonely journey, and you've, you've probably got yourself and your motivation to polish those things that are a bit yeah. under development. I think first thing is, there have been several studies on this that basically say that um, competent people repeatedly underestimate their competence mm -hmm. and uh, incompetent people overestimate it. And so if you're sitting there with self-doubt, sort of not sure how, really, how good you really are, that's a really good sign. It probably means that you're a little bit better than you think. Yeah. And if you're sitting there going, yeah, I, I got this. I'm like the best person for this job. I can't make any mistakes. You're probably an idiot. And it, it kind of makes sense. It's actually pretty interesting to read about this. I would just suggest Googling uh, mm. this. It's kind of funny, and the results come back sort of repeatedly true in this way. If you, if you ask, you know, you can ask a bunch of people to do a particular task, which has, like, objectively scoring. So you ask, you know, you take 100 people, you ask them to do a task that you can objectively score how well they did. And then you ask them, how well do you think they, you did? And you rate yourself on a 1 to 10. The people who actually did it well rate themselves, well, maybe I'm a 6 or 7. And the people who screw it up are like, yeah, I'm an 8 or a 9. So this, like... You should never try to excise from your soul this feeling of doubt. Mm. Like it is a healthy thing that probably means that you're a motivated, competent person. And the day you stop feeling like a fraud is probably the day you're actually becoming a fraud. And then that's probably the biggest thing. Yeah. Uh, in terms of books, you know, I'm not a big fan of business books in mm. general. I, you know, I think I probably got more value by reading The Lord of the Rings 13 times than you know, <laughs> most business books. I do think Ben Horowitz's uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things is, is exceptionally good yeah. and definitely worth reading. The most influential nonfiction book on me 
is a book by Stuart Brand called The Clock of the Long Now, which is definitely worth reading. The Long Now is this amazingly cool. It's like the coolest organization ever in the universe. I've been a, I've been a member of it for, for a long time. It's, uh, it's an organization that works on long-term planning, you know, planning for 10,000 years. Uh, some of you guys may have heard of it. They're building this clock in the desert that's meant to run for 10,000 years. They've got a project to preserve all human languages. There's a project to de-extinct the woolly mammoth. All ridiculously cool and actually very serious. And the clock of the long now just sort of explains this organization. But really it talks about how to think long-term. And uh, it was massively influential on me. I read it many years ago when it first came out and really shaped my thinking and continues to. to the clock of the long now. The clock of the long now. You can read it in pretty much one sitting and it, it's worth it. Excellent. Well, that's a great recommendation. Well, on behalf of everyone, a uh, big thank you for joining us, and hopefully we'll get to swing by GCU when we're in the Valley again. Yeah, come on by. We'd love to, uh, to see you, and uh, it was great to see you, Carlos. Great. Thanks. Bye.